0: Some forms of knowledge uh, aspire to the role of expert. and and have expert status because of the ways in which those forms of knowledge have been produced. As Margaret suggested, with medical knowledge it has that kind of status because it has tradition, authority, and systems of sanctioning and vetting those who are allowed access to that form of knowledge. There are different dimensions to knowledge and also different dimensions in its social construction, and some may be more important at at particular times than others. We're going to listen to an extract. From a Radio 4 programme in our time, where Charles Leadbeater talks about the changing production of different sorts of knowledge.
1: I think there is a, a revolutionary change going on. I think it's the conjunction of a series of forces that have developed over a long time and are coming together now. And it's not just information, it is that basically value in our economy now is generated out of thin air, it's generated out of ideas, knowledge, uh, innovation, creativity. The new significance is that if you look at one of the leading companies of the world like Intel, it makes a physical thing, a chip but actually the silicon is completely worthless, the material is completely worthless, the value lies in the logic that's inscribed upon it. If you look at Microsoft, it's the the largest, most powerful corporation in the world. Um, Look at its balance sheet, of course, it's got buildings, land, machinery on it, but actually its value is entirely in intangible things in sort of software and recipes. Now, this is a completely different change. We're not trading physical commodities, we're trading ideas, information, images and other things, and that has very big implications.
0: What's he talking about here? What are the different factors involved in the example he cites here of knowledge production?
2: Well, I think the interesting thing about this piece is that it turns our attention to economics, to pounds, shillings and pence. And I think in the contemporary world, the dictates and the demands of economics, of profit-making, of corporate profitability are absolutely essential uh, to understanding what knowledge is produced, how it is produced and why it's produced. Um, I mean, I think that uh, Leadbeater is right to say that uh, the contemporary economy is more dependent than ever before on intangible forms of knowledge. But I think there's more to be said here because when you've got so much research, knowledge production and knowledge application going on in the corporate sector, in the private sector... Um, that's got to have an impact on what types of knowledge are focused on uh, and what types of knowledge are not focused on. I mean, for example, if you look at the world of pharmaceuticals, which is an incredibly knowledge-intensive industry, you find that enormous amounts of money are being expended on very, very sophisticated you know, forms of research in uh, and knowledge production in molecular chemistry and production processes and so on, all to make better aspirin to deal with people's stress in the West. But when it comes to the the kinds of knowledge that will be required to deal with some of the most significant and preventable diseases and ailments in the developing world, you find that almost nothing is being spent. And that is simply the profit motive at work in the corporate sector.
0: It's about economics, but it's also about power and the way in which power operates in the production of knowledge. And this is one dimension of the social construction of knowledge. Margaret?
3: Yes. I mean, David drew our attention to economics, but politics plays an enormous role here as well. The question of who has the power and the question who has the knowledge. The example of Microsoft highlights the importance of the control of knowledge. And there has been a recent extremely long running Court case, which focused on on this particular thing, the way in which the control of this kind of knowledge by a single company actually gave it enormous power throughout the world. In fact, more power, as well as more money, than many individual nation states. So the two are very much tied up together. And we've already talked about how, in other ways, experts get their authority from the control of a particular kind of knowledge through social institutions such as the medical profession and the legitimisation of that control by the state. The other side of that, of course, is that if groups or individuals don't have that institutionalised power and authority, they're going to find it very difficult to get alternative ideas or interpretations, alternative forms of knowledge, accepted at all. And so in order to evolve knowledge, to develop knowledge, to disseminate knowledge, you need to be engaged in a kind of political process. And the tools which are used during that process are the tools of power, political tools.
0: It's all very widely implicated together. It's very difficult to disentangle the different dimensions. But what do you think are are other aspects upon which we could focus in terms of how knowledge is socially constructed, David?
2: I think one of the most important things is language because without language you can't produce knowledge, you can't interpret knowledge but language is not merely facilitative, language also limits what you can say and what you can't say. Um, I mean, to give a very basic example, think of the color spectrum, which runs electromagnetically without any kind of breaks in it from what we understand to be red at one end to blue at the other. Now, we happen to have a language uh, in English that basically cuts up that spectrum into seven bits red, orange, yellow, etc., etc. But there are many languages in the world which don't make the distinction between orange and red and yellow. You basically have red and you have yellow. Now, when people with that kind of language framework look at something that you and I think is orange, they'll call it red or they'll call it yellow. Now that's a kind of trivial example but it shows the way in which uh, the language and the words that you have available to you shape the kind of knowledge and perception you have of the world. I mean to give a more kind of substantial uh, example in relation to uh, expert knowledges, uh, I think of uh, my kind of own early readings in the social sciences where I was forever coming across books called Man and Society. For 70 or 80 years the professional social sciences basically wrote women completely out of the equation simply by saying man and society as if issues of gender and gender difference not to mention half the population of the world simply do not figure and that linguistic limitation is actually reflected in the kind of social science that was done where there was kind of minimal amounts of study research and work done on the conditions of women or the role of gender in structuring social relationships of all kind. Another example, um, it seems to me, of the way in which the language we inherit shapes the way in which we think about the world is the idea of safety and safety experts. I think of the examples of uh, nuclear power, which for many years was deemed by governments and their safety experts to be safe. Now, when the public hear the word safe, that means it's inconceivable that this thing will blow up. But what safety experts actually mean is that the risk, as far as they are concerned in statistical terms, is so tiny that they feel that they are allowed to call it safe now that's a radically different set of meanings. From the
1: Open University for more information go to www.open.ac.uk forward/ use.